Well, good morning, everybody. I want to invite you guys to turn to the book of Galatians. Seth mentioned and prayed over just now. Uh, this is going to be our, our home on Sunday mornings for the, the next few months together through the end of the year. And I'm really excited to introduce it to you today. If you've been at Trinity very long, you know that I tend to geek out over these introduction sermons. I love them. It feels like it's the closest thing I get as a long-time graduate student who sort of has a lot of nostalgia for those days. It's the closest I get to Syllabus Day, and I say that every time we start a new sermon series. This is like Syllabus Day without the pressure. You know, some people love Syllabus Day because you get an overview of all the things you're going to learn. Other people hate Syllabus Day because you realize, now I have to do all the things that are described in the syllabus. I feel like you've got to do them on day one. Uh, Think of this morning as a chance to learn what you're going to learn without having any pressure to deliver on anything. Uh, So hopefully that will encourage you to pay attention and to enjoy what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, I like to do an introduction every time we're going to do a a new series uh, on a book of the Bible that's a little bit summary and a little bit teaser. Uh, I think my main goal here is going to be to help you see why you should want what this book is going to offer us. To help you feel something of the weight of the questions it addresses itself to. And to help you see how wonderfully relevant the answers that it provides will be for you, for your life, uh, for the things that you're facing, and ultimately uh, for your ability to go deeper with Jesus, a better understanding of who he is and what it means to follow him, and a deeper trust in what he offers you. Um, Before I get into the details of of Galatians, the questions that Galatians is going to put in front of us. I want to also take a moment just to clarify, especially for those of you who are new with us here at Trinity, uh, how we handle our teaching times on Sunday mornings. It's all very intentional and we want to create as much buy-in as we can get uh, from, from you about why we do things the way we do them. So during these times on Sunday mornings, where we're considering in depth a part of God's word to us, we, we prefer to, to take an entire book of the Bible and to work through it verse by verse from beginning to end. And one of the main reasons we go this way is that we want the, the, the word that God has spoken to us in the Bible to set the agenda for what we cover. Not that we can't get good encouragement out of taking a question that we have and looking to the Bible to answer it and coming up with a kind of topical or systematic Uh, presentation on a subject that we're interested in you can get good encouragement that way and we'll do that sometimes but the danger of of that being the bulk of your diet as a Christian is that you're really only going to get what the people preparing to teach you feel is relevant and you're probably only going to get what they already think about this subject you know they're probably going to be mining from their own insights what they've gleaned from their study and presenting it to you and that's good to get but if that's, the, if that's the bulk of your diet, what you're going to miss out on is the, is the power of God's word to set the agenda and teach you things that even your teacher didn't know to look for before he, he spent the week preparing. We find that working verse by verse through books of the Bible helps us to be submissive to God's word, to come hungry and to be shaped by it in ways we could never have predicted because we believe that it's powerful, that it's not just any other book, but that it's a word from God who is its source backed by the Spirit of God who is its power even now to transform those who come to it looking, hoping, and listening. Another thing I want you to know about our approach to teaching in these times is that we like to swap back and forth between Old Testament books and New Testament books. There's a couple reasons for that, but largely what we like to do is introduce you to the diversity of the Bible. It's an incredible book. 
There are so many different genres here, so many different authors' perspectives, different contexts in which these different books were written. It's a book that came together over thousands of years from several different, I mean, many different authors. And we like to expose you to that, that breadth of, of material in the Bible. That's one reason we are going from uh, studying a, a story and laws that come out of that story. Earlier in the spring, we looked at Exodus. To, to this summer, we looked at poems, songs that Israel sang about what God had done for them in their experience. And then now moving into a letter, a very different kind of book that has its own way of teaching us true things about God. We like to expose our people to as many of these different genres as possible in a short span of time so that you learn more about the Bible and what it's like, so that you get better equipped to, to understand the different parts of it for yourself. And then, and then behind all of that, the point we're hoping that you'll take is that the Bible, for all its diversity, for all the different perspectives that come into the writing of these books and for all the many years over which it took its shape, the Bible is one story, one overarching account sourced in God about who God is, about what he's done to save his people. That's a story that runs from Exodus which we consider this spring, all the way up to Galatians, which we'll consider this fall. And I think that the, the, what, what you'll find, if you're here for the Exodus series this spring, what you'll find is that the Galatians series that we'll do this fall follows especially well on that book. That book was there to provide us with a, a case study in history of, of who God is and how you can expect to be loved by him. It was meant to reveal him, to make his name known as a God who redeems those who know they have nowhere else to turn and simply cry out to him for the help that he alone can give them. That's who he is. That's what Exodus has shown us. This book, Galatians, is about that same God revealing himself to be for those who have nowhere else to turn but the death and resurrection of Jesus, his son. In Exodus, one, another thing that we looked at is that this God who saves by grace also gives commands. That he gives his people guidelines for a life that will be good for them and good for those around them a way to flourish under his care trusting him with what's best for their lives that commands are not out of out of sync with with a God who saves by grace Galatians is about these same things how does grace God's grace shown in Christ relate to commands that God gives Commands that he's given in the Old Testament commands that are given in the New Testament commands that are that are over us as Christians what's our relationship to God's law that's what this book is about, just like Exodus. And then at the heart of this letter that's about grace and about obedience is, of course, Jesus. And the radical difference that Jesus makes for how we engage with the story that's been playing out since the earliest days of the Bible's history. The story that we covered in detail in Exodus builds to, gets taken up in, the story that's ultimately about Jesus who came and lived and died and rose. And Galatians is going to help us make those connections together. This is a book that's a letter that was written by Paul who is probably writing to some Christians who became Christians on one of his early missionary journeys. He's writing to them because he's come, he's told them the truth about Jesus, they become Christians, he's set up local churches there and then he's moved on to places that don't know anything about Jesus. And in the meantime, these brand new Christians who aren't mature Christians yet, who don't know anything Paul didn't teach them about what it means to be a Christian, well, they've had other influences coming in behind him, raising questions that they weren't prepared to answer on their own. And so Paul, whose mission is to keep going, keep going, keep going, gets reports about what's happening where he's already been and sends letters like this one to pastor those people from a distance 
What we're getting is a record of the church in its earliest days taking shape. This frontier uh, phase of the church's existence and all the challenges that came with it. We're going to see that playing out in this letter as Paul is faithful to these Christians that he's, that he's told about Jesus to continue pastoring them from a long way off. And this letter that he's written to them is a letter that's all about the gospel. The gospel is a word we use, Paul uses, for good news. The news of, of what Jesus has accomplished to save those who look to him. We're going to be looking at one of the earliest accounts of the gospel, written within 15 or 20 years of Jesus' own lifetime. And what I want to show you this morning, really briefly, to set up our time together, are the four questions that I see at the heart of this letter. Four questions, all relating to the gospel, that Paul is going to raise and then answer for us in this letter. My goal for these questions is not to give you the full answers to them, actually, but just to help you feel the weight of them. I want to offer you a little bit of a teaser about what these questions will will mean for you, about the ways that they'll intersect with things that you're actually dealing with and wondering about, so that we're all hungry and come to the series hoping to hear a word that we need and can't do without. Now, fortunately for us, the first four, or excuse me, first five verses of chapter one in Galatians set up the main questions that I believe this letter is here to answer for us. They give us a great perspective, in, albeit in a kind of clue, uh, clue-like form, on what the whole letter is about. So I want to read the opening five verses and use those to guide us into the questions that this letter is going to address. And I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. I'm going to pick up in verse 1 of Galatians chapter 1 and read through verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You can be seated. The first question that this letter addresses is how can you know what the gospel is? I mentioned that the gospel is going to come up all through this letter. That's the main theme of the letter, the good news. But, but the first major section of the letter, Paul's not actually talking about what the gospel is. He's talking about where he got it. He's addressing himself to something that's brewing in this congregation. Questions, challenges that really go back to authority. Who gets to tell you what the gospel is? How can you know that what they're telling you is true? How can you know what the gospel is? The first line of this letter, Paul's pointing the way towards that challenge that he's going to take up in the first couple of chapters. He identifies himself here as an apostle. It just means sent one, but it meant a lot more in the early church. That's what the word means, sent one, but in the early church it was a title. A title for people who who met Jesus when he was still living on earth and who were sent out by Jesus on purpose with the unique role of setting up churches and helping those churches understand what's true about Jesus and his gospel. It's a title that speaks to Paul's authority and it sets up this first big section of the letter where he's going to explain where he got this authority, how he became an apostle. 
It starts with a revelation from Jesus straight to him, then gets backed up later by other church leaders in Jerusalem. And we're going to look at that in two weeks. A section that begins in chapter uh, 1, verse 11, and goes through verse 10 of chapter 2. And it doesn't take long to realize that, that Paul is going into all this detail. That he starts his letter there because people came into this community of faith after Paul left it, challenging Paul's authority. They were offering a different message. They were questioning his source material. They were saying, yeah, but... They were trying to fill in gaps that they believed Paul left when Paul set this church up. And I'll be honest, at times when I've read this chapter, the chapter and a half, which goes into such detail about why Paul is an apostle, where he got his apostleship from, a lot of historical details about his relationship to the other apostles and to the leaders in Jerusalem. I'll be honest, at times I've been tempted to read quickly over this section, kind of skip over it, scan it quickly and move on. Because it really seems like a relic from his unique situation, from that time and place. Maybe interesting anecdotally for insight into the early church and what things were like at that time, but hard to get any encouragement from. If you have even less sympathy for Paul's perspective than I do, when you get to that question, or to that section of the letter, rather, you might even dismiss it as a kind of rhetorical chest-thumping one-upmanship because it kind of could read that way if you weren't sympathetic to Paul's perspective. It's almost like a back-and-forth, yes, so, yes, so, yes, so kind of moment or some sort of argument about whose dad can beat up whose dad. I mean, it, it is that kind of case that Paul is making here. And without sympathy for his perspective, it could be off-putting rather than illuminating. You could be tempted to ask, why should I care about this stuff? And how could I even know who's right anyway? But really, so I mean, here it comes. You knew that I was setting you up for this. Really, this section does matter. Newsflash. It matters. It's in here. Not, not just for historical interest. But because Paul is actually addressing a question you can't afford not to address. Paul is getting at why you can trust any version of what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with you, and what can be done about it. That's really what the gospel is. It's a version of what's gone wrong and how it can be fixed. There are lots of gospels out there. You'll have many to choose from. You owe it to yourself to ask, how can I trust a gospel as mine? Paul's going to make some major claims. And behind these claims are the highest of stakes, life and death. He's going to make claims that are contested in his own time, that are contested in our time, and that have been contested in every generation in between us. And so he wants you to know. And what you're going to need to evaluate is his claim that that he got his gospel from the God who stands behind it. From the God whose grace initiated it. Whose power accomplished it. And whose mercy now offers it to anyone who will believe. What you'll see as Paul gets into this is that he is going to make his case that he got his apostleship not from men, verses verse 1, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Let's reverse that. Why should you trust this gospel? Paul says you should trust it because Jesus, who really was dead, is now really alive again. 
And Jesus, who is now alive again, even though he was dead, he gave this gospel directly to me. And this gospel that he gave directly to me comes from the Father who sent him to give it to me and who stands behind its promises. You want to know why you can trust me? It's because I met with Jesus. What Paul is saying here is that his authority behind this gospel is tied to history, to something concrete and irreplaceable. You should know that. This is what you're being asked to evaluate in this letter. Behind this gospel is something that really happened. Behind this gospel is the authority of the God who sent Jesus to live and to die and to rise. Friends, you need to know this because you can't trust what you observe from nature, for example. A lot of wonderful things you could learn from studying closely how the world works. That's highly encouraged. Many of you are making a life out of it, and that's great. Thank you for that work. But you will not learn from your studies of nature how what's obviously broken in the world can be made right. You may know more and more about how the world works, But you won't learn what sort of power is behind everything that exists. You won't learn what sort of power could make things right. You won't learn what such a power has already done or means to do in the future. You won't get there from the most amazing telescope or microscope or even the most detailed and thorough of a longitudinal study. You won't get there that way. You can't get to the gospel from paying attention to nature. You also won't get there, friends, from paying attention to your own intuitions. According to the Bible, you shouldn't trust yourself. Your gut reaction to what you'll hear about this gospel, Paul's gospel, is unstable. It's affected by all sorts of things you can't recognize and that aren't aimed at truth so much as they're aimed at self-protection or popularity or whatever else. Your gut reaction, your intuitions toward this gospel are compromised. You can't trust yourself. The reality is that the gospel in this letter and throughout the Bible has always been counterintuitive. It'll always clash with instincts that come natural to us and that we'll have often take for granted. You may not like what you hear, in other words, as we keep moving. You, I, I'm going to encourage you right here, right now, Paul's encouraging in this first section of his letter, to push back on your intuitive reaction to what you'll hear, to push through it and to ask, not do I like this message, But how can I know if this is true? How can I know who God is and what it looks like to have peace with Him? How can you know if Paul's message is what you ought to believe? And what Paul is saying here in verse 1, the only way you can know if this gospel is true is if God tells you that it is. And that through the risen Jesus who spoke to me, that's exactly what he tells you. Paul's not posturing in this early section. He's not insecure or counting his resume. He's not making a raw power play. He's pointing to the only reason you should trust the gospel because it comes from the resurrected Jesus. That's the first question. We'll be going in depth on that in a couple of weeks. Sets up another question though. I mean, so far what we've been saying is, why should you trust the gospel? How can you know what the gospel really is? But that raises the question, well, what is the gospel in the first place? What is Paul's version of it? And that's what this letter is here to to answer. What exactly is this gospel that Paul says right here at the top, he's gotten from Jesus? 
Probably this letter was written to clear up some confusion about what it means to identify yourself with Jesus as a Christian. I mentioned earlier, it's written within 20 years probably of the life of Jesus. It's one of the earliest explanations that we have of who Jesus is and what he did and how you can get in on it. And even here in these first verses, opening the letter, you get hints. You get signs of how Paul is going to answer that bigger question. What is the gospel? In verses 4 and 5, you get the main building blocks. It's described in verse 4 as a deliverance. Peace, he said, from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us. If you start there, you realize, okay, whatever this good news is, it implies that something's terribly wrong. It implies that something's wrong with me, that I can't fix for myself, that I am waiting and helpless until someone else from the outside comes to deliver me. You get a sign of the scale of the problem, the plight that we need to be rescued from. And in this case, you're also told what it is. Our sin is at the heart of it. Disobedience to God is behind everything broken in this world, Paul will tell us. Behind everything harmful done or said to you, done or said by you to other people. These verses also point us to what God has done about it. The censor of God's response to what's broken in the world, broken by sin against Him, is to send His Son, Jesus, to give Himself for sin to pay what it would cost God to forgive us for it through His death on the cross. And these verses point us to why. The motive behind God's response to the problem of sin is His own will, verses 4 and 5 tell us. According to the will of God our Father, that's why He gave Jesus to deliver us from the present evil age. That's a loaded phrase. That it's by God's own will means that it's It's not because we paid them off. It's not because we got the moral capital built up, so to speak. It's not because he was obligated to do it through some sort of prearranged deal that we made with him. He just sheerly, by grace, decides, I'm going to rescue sinners through the death of my son. What we have in these couple of verses are the, 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 the essence of the gospel. Sinners delivered from sin by the death of Jesus sent to them for that purpose sheerly by the gracious will of the God who made them. And that's why verse 5 says he gets the glory forever and ever and ever. Now friends, this gospel has wide-reaching implications for the past, for the present, for the future, for every life, for every society we live in, for the whole world. This gospel spreads its implications throughout all of it, but at its heart, is news of what's already been done for anyone who trusts in Jesus. What's already been done. Peace with God through the death of Jesus for sin so that undeserving sinners like me can know forgiveness and live in freedom. Now what you'll notice is that Paul writes because this simple, straightforward, counterintuitive good news has been challenged. This letter is sharp. It's it's combative in a way most of his letters, other letters aren't. I mean, even some of, the, even some of the, the little details about how he starts this letter point us towards that. He doesn't beat around the bush. You know, he's not starting with a, hey, hope you've had a nice summer, uh, and then get into it. He doesn't, he doesn't use any of those passive-aggressive phrases we throw around. So I just want to throw this out there, you know, just, just wanted to say, just wanted you to know. Um, no, no, he doesn't do that. In fact, in this letter, he doesn't even spend time for Thanksgiving. 
Most of his letters start with something he's thankful for in the people he's writing to and then get to the thing he wants to say. He skips Thanksgiving altogether in this letter. He's not thankful for what they're facing, for what he's hearing. He's astonished. That's what verse 6 says. I am astonished, he says in verse 6, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. We're going to spend time week to week talking about what had turned their heads. In short, it's, it's a group that has often been called the Judaizers who believe that the Christian life meant, it required more than just believing in Jesus, believing the gospel I just summarized, believing in the, the truths behind verse 4 here. It meant more than, than just trusting in Christ, but, but that also meant obedience to the law of Moses. You have to piece this together from what Paul says in his letter, and that's, a, that's dangerous to do. You've got to be careful with that. I mean, reading this letter to try to figure out what the people who he was writing against were actually saying is, has been compared to uh, listening to one side of a phone conversation, and you're kind of mirroring from what you're hearing what's going on on the other end, and you have to be really careful with that and charitable towards other views, and, and, and we're going to do our best to rein in how confident we are about what's going on here. But, but it seems clear enough that... Circumcision was a huge part of what they were insisting Christians must, must go through in order to be fully living the Christian life as one of the key markers of the ethnic identity of Judaism. That to become a Christian meant not just that you could continue on living as a Gentile, but that you had to come into the flow of life that was set by the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law. That yes, they don't seem to be denying that Jesus is important or even that he's the Messiah, Maybe we wouldn't even deny that his death was the sacrifice other sacrifices had been building to. But that, that what's going on here is that in addition to his death, other regulations are being tacked on. You need Jesus plus. You need to take on the, the, the customs of, of our group. You need to take on our ways as your own if you want to please God. And for Paul, Jesus plus anything else is another gospel. It isn't just a gospel that's a little bit off. It's a different gospel. It's a false gospel. A gospel that won't save you. And that's why he writes with such emotion, with such remarkable frankness all through this letter. Especially chapters 2 to 4, we're going to see this. In chapters 2 to 4, we're going to see him clarifying what is the essence of the gospel against those who have tried to add to it. And when we get there, friends, we need to know that the stakes that that drove Paul to write with such urgency and to use such strong language are the same stakes that we're living with today. Now, we may not have our heads turned by the same principles that they were subject to. But we'd be crazy to think that we'll be the generation that won't have our heads turned away from the simplicity and humiliation of the gospel's core claim. The gospel's core claim is that, is that there is nothing that we have to do and nothing we can do to build on the grace of God to us in Jesus. We're going to get smacked in the face with our own poverty before God. And that is a humiliating thing to come to to, to accept. Every generation that's ever heard that message has pushed back against it in one way or another. And we will too. And what we need to know is that these stakes are high. Much is riding on getting this message right. Your life rides on getting this message right. And Jesus plus whatever. Jesus plus the law. Jesus plus social activism. 
Jesus plus any form of self-discipline that you might get from some sort of guru is no Jesus at all. It's all or nothing. It isn't just useless to add to him. You know, like, like a little kid pushing against the back of a truck that's just started moving. I mean, that shove is really not adding to the force, the weight, the, mo- the, the propulsion of that vehicle. It isn't just useless in that sense. It's actually going to keep you from Jesus if you add to him. It's all or nothing, Paul's going to say to us. You add to him, you lose him. And what you'll see is that this is, this is great news for the ruined. For those who have already recognized that, they are, that they've got nothing to offer. Who are done trying to prove themselves. Who tried that hard enough for long enough and realized there's no future in it for them. For, for the ruined... This notion that it's all Jesus or no Jesus will be sweet. Because you will be, you friend, and this is you, let me just tell you, let me straightforwardly tell you right now what Paul's going to tell you in detail the next few months together. You are on the same ground as the holiest person you can imagine. You are no more needy than that person. You are no less savable than that person. But for the climbers among us, the ones who are still driven to make a mark. Who hold on to some sort of hope that we might get an edge on the rest of the world by what we do. Well, we're going to face a week-in, week-out challenge from this letter. And that leads me to question number three. What does the gospel mean for who you are? If the content of the gospel is the main theme, what you're going to find is that throughout this letter... Paul is also making wonderfully relevant applications of the gospel. He's going to clarify what it is, but then he's also going to tell us over and over again what it means for who we are and for how we live. So for the Galatians, one of the things we're going to see is that they were tempted to define themselves not just by Jesus and what he'd done for them, but by their group and by their performance. Those are two closely related things that we're going to see come up over and over again. What group do you belong to? A kind of tribal or ethnic solidarity that they wanted to, to be grafted into as part of how they knew they were, they were safe and on solid ground in the world. And then their performance, their ability to keep the law as a way of showing that they deserve something good from God and from others. They were tempted to group solidarity and performance to define themselves. Paul's going to say, absolutely not. You've died to that old self. If you've got Jesus, it's all or nothing. Chapter 2, verse 20. Listen to how he, listen to what, how he says this. This is, this is as stark as he can put it. I have been crucified with Christ, he writes. It is no longer I who live, no longer my group identity, no longer my performance before God. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's all Jesus or it's nothing, according to Paul. Or listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It's all Jesus or no Jesus, nothing else can improve your status before God. Now, I realize that these terms for identity are going to have a shade to them that was unique to Paul's context and that will seem a bit far into ours. But the craze to establish yourself 
to know who you are and let everyone else know who you are. That's just basic humanity. And that hasn't gone anywhere. You don't need this letter to get you interested in who you are. It is a major theme and it should be. What I want to encourage you to think about is where are you getting your information for who you are? How do you see yourself? Where do you look to know who you are and why your life matters? And friends, there are going to be lots of sources all around you offering to answer that question for you. There's going to be sources that offer you opportunities for self-discovery, calling you to deeper self-knowledge and self-awareness. There's going to be sources that you can use to curate for yourself the perfect combination of self-discovery and self-building that you then project to the world. You're going to be surrounded by books and articles and professional counseling or podcasts and even YouTube limited series calling you to this kind of self-discovery. You'll find it everywhere. And how you see yourself is worthy of this kind of attention. It's really, really important. But, one of the things I hope you'll see in this letter is that a kind of do-what-works-for-you mentality can sometimes, sometimes come with our approach to this line of literature. As if like all of these inputs for self-knowledge were neutral, equally valid, to be sort of mined and cobbled together for insight wherever you can find it as you walk your own journey of formation. And all I want to highlight for you now is that Paul's letter here is going to wage war on that way of thinking. What Paul's going to present to you is a specific version of your identity that comes with being a Christian that is distinct and absolute. He's going to argue and help us to see what what this understanding of ourselves is. And and what I'm hoping is that that will help you be more discerning as you sift through other material on who you are. The question you're going to confront is what does it mean to consider yourself as a Christian? To look at yourself from the perspective of your identity in Christ. And that's a question worth your time. There's one more, and this is where I'll end. What does the gospel mean for how you live? So the, the, the two core questions I've just considered, those come through in chapters 2, 3, and 4 of this letter. Chapters 5 and 6 talk about the effect of what God has done for us in Jesus on how we live in the world. And one of the common mistakes that has often been made in response to this message of, of, a, of a gospel of grace, is uh, a belief, whether articulated or not, that it doesn't matter what you do. If you're saved by grace, then your life is your own to live. And there's nothing you can do to add to Jesus, so why try? If God really loves us enough to save us freely in Christ, then does he really love us enough to constrain how we live? Does he, would that be consistent with his love, rather? And... One of the things that Galatians helps clarify, it's it's part of the whole message of the Bible, but it comes through really clearly here, is that the fact that God saves us by grace is actually why how we live matters in a new way. His grace doesn't stop at forgiveness of sins, but moves on to the complete transformation of every person who trusts in Jesus. To be in Christ is not just to be forgiven. It's not just to take on his track record as yours in the eyes of God. But it is to experience a power that will renovate you from the inside out until the job is completely done. Being saved by grace doesn't mean you're freed up to do whatever you want, no holds barred. It means that God is going to transform every bit of your life by His power, guided by His grace. Now, this too 
is going to challenge the way we often look for help with our lives. We talked about a lot of literature that's out there on, on self-discovery, uh, on self-knowledge, self-care. Self-help is another really powerful block of literature out there that we're, that we're constantly exposed to. And what we love about self-help lit is that it gives us things we can grab onto. It gives us low-to-the-ground tips. I mean, you can find for yourself content out there on how to curate the best Netflix viewing list for yourself out of all the overwhelming amount of content that's there. You can find tips for how to get your baby to sleep all night or how to get the most out of your daily commute or how to manage what you eat and keep track of it. Maybe it's a sign of our privilege that we're not so focused on survival and we can focus on optimization through technique instead. But, but we need to be self-aware that we are obsessed with optimization of life through technique. And if we come to this letter hoping for a technique that we can use to dominate our lives then we're going to be very disappointed. Because Paul, even though his letter is close to the ground, even though his letter is all about, it touches on all sorts of very everyday struggles that we experience, he is not writing to give us a blog-worthy set of six easy steps that anyone can take. He's not writing to give us technique. He wants us to detach ourselves from our confidence in technique. And instead, to look back to the grace of God, who works in us by His Spirit. The transformation He's working in every Christian is not mastered technique. It's not coming from mastered techniques, but from the inside out. So when He gets to chapter 5, a famous passage on the fruit of the Spirit, it matters that what those fruits are are internal postures. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Those are internal forces. And it matters that he describes them as the fruit of the Spirit. Not as accomplishments of the flesh that you can produce on your own. But fruit that's born all the way out from beginning to end by His power. The same power that saved you from your sin in the first place. So what we're going to consider is what the gospel means for how you live With the great hope that comes from knowing your life transformation is not on you to perform. But will come from the same grace that offered you forgiveness in the first place. Now, that's a lot of work ahead of us. By God's grace, we're going to trust that this word that's spoken so clearly for so long is going to keep on speaking in our life together. And I want to pray now that God will do that for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, even for the encouragement we've gotten this morning from looking at your word and the promise that you have delivered us from the present evil age to which we were far too closely aligned. And that you've done this by giving your own son to save us from our sins. And that through your son, you've also given us your spirit to finish what he has started in us. We give ourselves over to you now, asking that you will overcome everything in us that would keep us from connecting with this message. That you give us hope from what Paul has written. And that you give us joy in pursuing this gospel of grace together. Speak to us, we pray, by what you've spoken in Jesus' name. Amen.